Good. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 120. Psalm 120. Uh, this morning I am really excited to get to be starting a new series with you all in the book of Psalms. So for the past six months we have been in the book of Galatians, chasing every nook and cranny and uh, embracing everything there. And it has been a glorious time. Uh, now, for the, uh, for the duration of the summer, we're going to be looking um, at the book of Psalms, and we're starting a series this morning uh, where we're going to be diving into a series of songs which are labeled for us as the songs or the psalms of ascents, or the psalms of degrees. Depends on how far back you go and how that's interpreted. So typically we call these the songs of ascents. Now these include Psalms uh, 120 through, through 134. And so 15 Psalms we're going to be looking at. My goal is to cover these in the next seven weeks, which if you're familiar with the way I like to preach, I like to get into the weeds. And so this is going to be a good challenge for me. Because I'm, and I'm looking forward. So we're going to try to do two chapters per week. We're going to see how this goes. Um, the reason I want to do it that way, because we could. There's nothing stopping us from taking chapter by chapter, psalm by psalm, or even parts of psalms by psalms, and just working our way slowly through this. But I have a goal in this, because what I want to do is I want to expose you to the precious truths of each one of these psalms individually, but also, as we do that, I want to emphasize the overall message they communicate to us as we read them together. And I think we'll get a better picture of that if we move through this at a little, a little bit more of a briefer uh, pace. Uh, as we look at the overall intention of what these psalms are meant to do, we see that these psalms call God's people and equip us to live in the hope of heaven. So the name of this series is going to be Living in the Hope of the Heavenly City. Living in the Hope of the Heavenly City. As we look at the songs of ascents, we see that this is really meant to serve sort of as a handbook for believers, a a guide for us to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven as even as we serve as ambassadors of Christ in a fallen world. So this series of songs is intended to give the believer hope in the midst of a troubled world. It's meant to raise our gaze from the troubles around us to the glories of heaven. And I'm extremely excited to get into this series with you. And I hope that as we do, your own confidence in Christ is going to be built up as you see how God has been working to, to achieve this uh, since before he founded the world. So, excited about that. A quick word about the songs of ascents. The songs of ascents are unique in that they are unique. To, they're, they're linked together by this common theme, this, this title. Uh, and they actually appear to have been composed over a, sig a significant amount of time by several different authors, most notably David, but also apparently Solomon. Specifically, we see that in Psalm 127. And, and then also some uh, various other authors who are not necessarily identified for us. You know, it's likely that this title, this appellation, was, was assigned by an editor or by the publisher who was compiling the, the book of Psalms. So um, as we look at this, we'll see that even as these Psalms were probably written over different amounts, over at different points in time by different authors, they have a common theme and they have a common purpose that they're, and a message they're trying to express to us. Now the exact 
label, uh, that exact reason this label is given to it, is debated. Uh, some Jewish rabbis have conjectured that these songs were sung by the Levitical priest on each one of the 15 steps that made their way from the outer courts of the temple into the inner courts of the temple. Now, there is absolutely no evidence for that, and so we don't know if that's the case or not. It, it's not out of the realm of possibility that they sang these songs as they were going in, but we don't know that for a fact. And um, so another possibility is that these songs were labeled as such when the Jews were making their way back to Jerusalem from the Babylonian exile. Although, once again, this is total conjecture, and there's real, really no evidence for that. A third possibility, um, which is John Calvin's favorite uh, possibility, although he admits that, once again, it's conjecture, is that these were, they're labeled the songs of ascents or the songs of degrees because of the musicality, uh, that this, this is actually instructions to you on how you were supposed to sing it. Uh, once again, this didn't come with sheet music, so we don't know. Um, so what we can say with, with great, a great deal of certainty about these songs, however, is that by bearing this label, they are meant to be read and understood together. So we shouldn't read the songs of ascents in isolation from each other. There's a common purpose here. Each song has its own personal purpose and focus. But when we read these songs collectively, we find that these songs have an effect on us to raise our gaze from the trouble that we face living in a fallen world to look and to perceive the glory of heaven and the promise of God's sure deliverance. Uh, the commentator Matthew Henry likens them to stairs on a staircase, raising us up by degrees from climax to climax until we see and savor the pinnacle glory of our promised Redeemer and Deliverer. I find that the spirit of these songs reflects well what we read in Hebrews 11 about the saints of old who came before the fullness of God's saving plan had been revealed in Jesus. He says that these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. As we make our way through the songs of ascents, I am going to read them and understand them through the lens of Hebrews 11, because I think that's how we're intended to do so. And as we look at these songs, I think you'll find that they are actually lining up in perfect harmony with what the author of Hebrews makes clear to us. These songs read as someone who is longing to be home, as someone who's on a journey and is ready to be there. They are, in the words of one author, the songs of a pilgrim making their way home. And so I find that these songs are infinitely more valuable to us as followers of Christ than we may have first imagined. They teach us to long for that heavenly Jerusalem that is our true home, where our citizenship stands in Christ if we've been united to him through faith in the hope of the gospel. These songs resonate with the heart of the homesick. They resonate with the soul that is tormented by the carnage of sin that is all around us.
They teach us how to mourn over evil. But they also teach us how to hope in the inheritance of King Jesus and the promise of salvation. And so they teach us, I find, to how to live in the hope of a heavenly city, New Jerusalem, where we will have peace and righteousness in the presence of our great God and King. And that is why I'm so excited to get in this series with you. So let's begin by reading our text. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to be reading from Psalm 120 through Psalm Psalm 121. This is the Word of the Lord. A song of ascents. In my distress I called to the Lord, and He answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. A song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Please be seated. Well, having read them this morning, you surely can see that Psalm 120 And Psalm 121 are really meant to be read together. Uh, In the first one, we have a call and a cry, desperate cry for help. And then in Psalm 121, we get an answer of sure deliverance. It's like peanut butter and jelly. They just go together. About three years ago, Ellie and I got to travel out of the country. And we spent two weeks out of the country. And uh, when we went there, we went to share... The good news, and we went to visit some faithful friends who were, who were making residence there and doing the same. Everything that was there was very different. And while the, as I spent more time there, uh, the, the, the things that I first found as strange about the culture and even the language, they felt less strange to me the longer we were there. I, I got used to hearing it. And I got used to smelling the smells and, and seeing the certain height, certain sights and being a foot taller than everyone else. Um, and I, but the thing is that even as we spent that amount of time there, I never really felt like I was at home. I felt comfortable enough, but I never felt like I was at home. I was a stranger there. My time there was temporary. And the Bible calls Christians strangers and sojourners in the world because our true home is somewhere we've never been. Remember what Paul told the Galatians in Galatians 4 verse 26. The Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. You are the children of the promise set free by Christ. The author of Hebrews puts it like this. 
For you have not come to what may be touched, but you have come to Mount Zion in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to be into innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. If you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, if you've been linked to him by faith, then you are a stranger to this world, a sojourner. And the message of these psalms is intended for you. That message, and our main idea this morning, is this. Hope in God, sojourner, for he is your deliverer, your helper, and your keeper. Hope in God, sojourner. Lift your eyes, for he is your deliverer, your helper, and your keeper. Now what we want to do in our time this morning in these psalms is to parse out each one of these roles that God does. We want to see the God who delivers, the God who helps, and the God who is our keeper. Let's begin by looking at the God who delivers. Now every staircase has a bottom step, a lowest point. If you think about the songs of ascents like a staircase, then Psalm 120 is probably what I would say the lowest step. Uh, these words come from a heart that is in agony, a heart that is in great distress. Now the psalmist is not identified for us in the text itself. Some speculate that it, there is that this is David, uh, and though there's there's some good uh, evidence for that, it, there's also a, a good case to be made that this could have been written many years later by one of the exiles who was sojourning outside of the land. Now there are three apparent reasons why our psalmist is in such great distress. First, he indicates that he is under assault by deceitful lips. He is being slandered. Verse 2 says this, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Now, the Bible tells us that Satan is a liar, that he is a deceiver, and so are his servants. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus told the Jews who rejected him, those who were not believing in him, he said, You, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do the father, your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Uh, there is a, as we read this, this, this psalm, there's a building tension between the godly and the wicked. Lies are a tool of Satan. Lies are opposed to the very character of God. And James tells us that God's nature is like pure light, that in him there is no shadow or variation, meaning there is no change to God. He is perfect, and he maintains his perfection. John calls Jesus the truth, the life, and the way. Paul in Titus 1 verse 2 connects the very hope of the gospel to the truthfulness of God when he expresses how we live in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. The cry of the psalmist in Psalm 120 is for deliverance from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. He is under attack, not with spears or arrows, but with words from a wicked enemy. Words are more harmful than we give them credit for, aren't they? James tells us 
he, 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 uh, he exclaims in awe. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Like the nozzle of a fire hose, the tongue sprays out the contents of the heart. And lies are like bullets fired from a gun at the heart and the soul of others. Sticks and stones may break our bones, but evil words break the spirit. They dry up the soul. They dull the mind and they flay open the heart. Lies are wicked and evil. And we see here that the author of our psalm is in great distress because of them. Now the second reason our psalmist says that he is in such great distress is because he is a stranger in a foreign land. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech and that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Now Meshech was a region that was associated with the Assyrians to the north, sort of the northwest of Israel, while Kedar is a reference to a certain tribe of nomads who were descendants of Ishmael who lived in the desert to the southeast of Israel. So the connection that the psalmist is making here between these two groups is less about the geography and more about the character of these peoples. Both of these areas and these groups were known for their savageness. Uh, They were not noble people. Add that to the agony that our author feels because he is away from home, living among, uh, the stranger as a stranger among the nations, and you get an idea of why his distress is so deep. Under the Old Covenant, the land of Israel is one of the focal points of God's blessing. And our author finds himself outside of that. He longs to be back in the land of promise, the land of God's presence, the land where God's temple is. Our author longs to be there, though now we see that he finds himself living as a stranger amongst the people who are foreign to him and who do not serve the Lord. The third reason our author says that he is in distress is because he is living amongst a people who love war and conflict. In verses 6 and 7, he says, Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And the Bible tells us that the wicked, the feet of the wicked are swift to shed blood. Like sharks in the water, they are hungry for it eager to prey on the innocent and the vulnerable. There's a sharp difference in the priorities of these people who the psalmist is sojourning with and the psalmist himself. It's a distinction we, we can expect that has made him a target of their slander. And we should expect that it has made him also a, a, an object of their own violent actions. This is why our psalmist says that he is in such great and deep agony. He's living in a sinful world, in an enemy kingdom. Woe to me, he says, because I am in great danger. This is not the sort of situation anyone would want to be in. But it is the sort of situation that reveals the tender care that God shows his people as their great deliverer. Go back to verse 1. In my distress, I called to the Lord. And he answered me. He answered me. Last week, Justin preached on the power of prayer. Prayer is powerful, not because it is a means of strong-arming God into what we want or need, but rather because it is an appeal of faith to the goodness and the mercy and the power of the God who hears and delivers. He answered me, the psalmist says. 
When I was in distress, He heard my cries for help, and He came for me. God is not the sort of father who leaves his beloved children to the mercy of fierce wolves. His wrath awakes against any who would dare try to prey on his flock. He is a good shepherd, and he defends his people. For a moment, the wicked may seem to prosper. It seems that part of the distress of the psalmist is that these wicked men are having their way. But we see, with eyes of faith, that their judgment in the end is sure. Look at verses 3 and 4. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? This is the oppressor. A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of a broom tree. Now that seems kind of strange to us, doesn't it? A broom tree, or a juniper tree, was a, was a tree that was known for producing very hot, long-lasting charcoal. And it also produced very deadly arrows. The people who are pressing on the psalmist here with their slanderous words are going to get what they want. They want war. But what they don't know is that they are of no match for their opponent. Their words are met with a warrior's sharp arrows, with the enduring vengeance of God's wrath. Um, This image that is being painted here by our author is similar to what David writes in Psalm 7 when he says, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. God is indeed the deliverer of his people. He turns the schemes of his enemies and the enemies of his people on their head. Like Haman who was hung from the gallows that he built uh, for the faithful Mordecai in the book of Esther, so the devices of the wicked become their own undoing. And Jesus tells his people that in this world we will have trouble. Uh, I think we are beginning to learn the meaning of that here in America. As we preach the good news of God's love in saving sinners from his wrath, we are labeled as bigots and homophobic. As we stand on the word of God as the final authority for all things, we are criticized and called radical fundamentalists, narrow-minded fools. But we share the good news of how God has sent His own Son to bring peace, to reconcile sinners unto Himself. And we call the world to be at peace with God, to believe the gospel, and to know salvation. We see that we live in a world that prefers to be at war with Him. As Christians, we don't revel in being at odds with the world around us. We long for our neighbors. We long for our community. We long for our nation. I don't like being called names. I don't like being mislabeled with hurtful terms. I don't like being screamed at. I I really don't like conflict. In making peace with us, Christ has called believers to be peacemakers. He says that peacemakers will be called sons of God. Whether whether or not we're willing to admit it, 
words do hurt. And sometimes words become physical stones that are thrown, as the blood of the martyrs attests. As strangers and sojourners living in the hope of a future glory, as citizens of the kingdom of God, I think this psalm is immensely helpful and encouraging for us. And it's helpful for at least two ways. First, it teaches us that it is right and good for us to pour out our hearts to God when we are in pain. Pray with an honest heart. The judge of all the earth will not despise the cry for help and justice. When we are in distress, keeping a stiff upper lip towards God in our prayers will do us little good. Jesus calls us to cast our burdens on him. He cares for us. Stoic prayer is not faithful prayer, just as stoic love is not faithful love. The God who answers us already knows our pain, and he calls us to bring that pain to him to find rest in Him, a rest which we will fully know on the day when we are finally gathered to Him. He has overcome, and our prayers ought to reflect that. Second, this prayer, this psalm, teaches us to wait patiently on the Lord. The psalmist comes across as if he is still in the middle of this distressing situation, but we see that he has great confidence that the Lord has not forgotten him and that he will not abandon him because he says to us, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. That's past tense. God may not deliver us from our distress according to the preference of our own timing. He knows what we need. He will give us the grace that we need in its due season. The reward of the righteous, though, is sure because God's work of deliverance is sure. It has been signed. It has been sealed. It has been delivered. It has been stamped by the resurrection of Christ. So we have a sure hope to live in knowing that God is our deliverer. Whatever we may face, whatever may be taken from us, whatever labels people try to attach to us or slanders they try to smear us with, we hope in the Lord who is our deliverer. We must hope in the one who has overcome the world through the power of his might, his obedience, his death, and his resurrection. We must hope in our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. He is our deliverer. Second, we want to look at the God who helps us. The God who helps us. Now, as we read Psalm 120, uh, it, it doesn't exactly end on a high note, does it? It begins on a high note, speaking of how God has faithfully delivered him, but then you get to the end, and the last word here is war. It's a distressing situation. The genius of, of Hebrew poetry is not in making rhymes so much as it is in making parallel statements. And the parallel statement to Psalm 120 uh, doesn't really, verse 1, doesn't really appear until Psalm 120, 1, verses 1 and 2 indicating to me that these two psalms really are meant to be read together. Uh, Psalm 121 relieves the tension of Psalm 120. In the second psalm of ascent, our focus is literally raised from the trouble and the distress of living in a fallen world to look at the glory of God who helps his people. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. 
There are a couple of things to notice about the way the psalmist speaks of God and how he helps his people. Now the action of helping here is intrinsically related to what we've already considered about God's work of deliverance, but there are a few distinctions here that are, that are unique and, and worthy of our attention. Now, first of all, the situation that we're looking at seems to have changed a bit. So whereas Psalm 120, uh, when we look at that, the psalmist is sojourner living in a foreign land. Now in Psalm 121, he's traveling on the road. As we read the opening words of this song, we pick up on a new emotion, an emotion of longing. Every time we go somewhere, especially when we're on a long trip, there is a point at which I'm always just wishing, can we just be done with this? I'm ready to get done. I'm ready to be there. I'm ready to stretch my legs and and turn the car off and just be done. Well, that is the sort of longing that we get out of this psalm. Uh, we, We get a sense of that longing from the way that the psalmist speaks about lifting his eyes to the hills. The mountains in and around Jerusalem aren't the sort of mountains that you would see out west, but they're still a challenge. You get the sense that as the psalmist is looking up the road to where he is going, he sees the difficulty of the road ahead, and he asks himself, where is my, who is going to help me do this? This is, this is going to be hard. And the answer that we have comes in verse 2, is from the Lord himself. Now the second difference between this song and the last psalm is the overall attitude of the psalmist. The psalmist in 120, uh, real, Psalm 120 really focuses on his distress, whereas Psalm 121 lifts our eyes from the distress of living in a fallen world to the glory of where we are going. The road that Christ calls his people to walk is narrow, it is dangerous, and it is difficult. One of Satan's many tools is to try to dissuade us from the path of faith by keeping our eyes on the trouble of our current situation. He loves to keep our eyes on the trouble of the road. When the nation of Israel was coming out of Egypt, they were glad to be out of Egypt for a while, but then the trouble of the road got to them. They grumbled against God, they grumbled against Moses, they grumbled against Aaron, and the appeal of the land that he was going to give to them began to lose its, its sufficiency for them. They began to long for what they already knew. They began to long for what they had when they were enslaved in Egypt. As sojourners and strangers, as pilgrims traveling, it's important for Christians to remember where we are going. Through Christ, God has secured for us an inheritance of eternal life. Not just life in eternal duration, but life that is full and free in Him. Life lived the way it was meant to be lived, and elevated even more so. Christ has made us God's sons and His daughters. We live in a world of temporary trouble, in a world that is passing away. So we must not lose heart. We must endeavor to persevere even in the face of current circumstances. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit is what gives believers the strength to do this. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
the Psalms of Ascent start in a low, low place with the struggle and the pain of living in a fallen world. But they quickly elevate our gaze to see the God of glory who is our deliverer, who has overcome sin and death for us. In him, Paul says, we are more than conquerors. We are not wholly passive in this call to faith. But as we see that Christ calls us to obedience and to, to, to make our calling and election sure. He calls us to endure as good soldiers, to live in the victory he secured for us, and to overcome by the grace of the Holy Spirit who is at work in us. God is not the sort of king who mobilizes his army and then sits at home. He is present with us. The joy of the psalmist here is in the presence of God with his people. And as he looks at the heights ahead and asks himself, how can I possibly do this? How can I possibly endure? His answer is that the God of heaven is his help. The one who made heaven and earth will see us through. Now, if we divorced these two verses from their context, I suppose we could read them sort of like those bumper stickers that you see from time to time that say something like, God is my co-pilot. I don't think that's what at all what the psalmist is saying here. As you read these words, you actually get the sense that the psalmist is confessing his total inability to reach the destination apart from the intervention of God's mighty power. As he stares at the heights before him, he is confident because God is with him to help him, to equip him, to guide him, and as we see in verses 3 through 8, to keep him. The success of this trip is wholly dependent on God's mercy and on God's grace. Now, during World War II, uh, Germany launched an astonishing bombing offensive against Great Britain, uh, particularly focused on the city of London. In an effort to keep up people's morale, the British government put up signs all over the city, one which simply said, keep calm and carry on. I don't know if there's ever been a more British statement than that. Another said, your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution will bring us victory. Oh, how different that is from the sure hope that the psalmist enjoys here and which everyone who has come to know Christ the King as their Savior has as well. We do not simply keep calm and carry on in the faith. We keep calm and we carry on because our help is from the Lord our God who is the maker and the sustainer of all things. We have a real reason to be courageous and to be joyful and to be resolved because of the faithfulness of His promises and, and the effectiveness of His work for us. So even as we live in a fallen world, we don't despair because Christ has overcome and our help comes from Him. A third thing that this, these two psalms of a sense calls us to see is the God who keeps us. The God who keeps us. In verses 3 through 8, the psalmist shifts from speaking about the way that God is with us to help us to speaking about how God works to keep us. Now the word keep is heavy with meaning. It's the idea of guarding something, of preserving it. Similar to the idea of what the commission that God gave to Adam when he put, placed him in the garden and told him to keep it and to guard it. This is where we learn about the sort of help that comes from the Lord. Five times in this psalm, we are told that the Lord keeps his people. First, the psalmist says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you 
will not slumber. Now, I know a couple of families in our church have gone out west recently and have been hiking. Uh, have you ever been hiking uh, and on a trail and lost your footing? It's, it's one thing to lose your footing when you're walking down the sidewalk. You might get a skinned knee. But when you slip on a mountain trail with a ravine to either side, it can be a life. It can, it can end your life. It can be the end. When the psalmist says, God will not let your foot be moved, he's illustrating the way that God is intently looking after his people to preserve them and to guide them. God is not a God who is far off or detached from his people. He is there, establishing our steps. He keeps us because he is watching over us. Now in Psalm four, or in verse 4, the psalmist moves from the way that God looks after his people individually to focusing a little more corporately, looking at how God looks after his people as a whole. He says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now you notice the common theme between both of these statements is that God does not get tired. He doesn't take naps. He is always engaged. God is not a created being. He is attentive. He is always watching, always working to accomplish his perfect purposes. Sleep is the great humbler of men. Kings and peasants have to sleep. Presidents and people have to sleep. Rich and poor, righteous and wicked, we all need to sleep. We cannot always stand guard. Now, um, when you're at the hospital with an infant, they scare the daylights out of you because they don't want you to lay your baby down on their belly. They are incredibly... Uh, so every night, we put Rebecca down. And if you don't know, infants have the worst breathing habits ever. So from whistling nostrils to snores to just not breathing and then breathing really fast, we don't know what to expect. So we do everything we can before we go to night. We go to bed at night. We, we carefully swaddle her tightly. We make sure she is comfortable. We make sure nothing is in the crib with her. We make sure she's laying on her back. We do everything we can to make sure she is safe. But eventually, we have to go to sleep too. We're not always there to stand over her and to watch her breathing and to, to protect her from, from harm, even though we're a foot from her head. God does not slumber. He does not sleep. His guard is never down. He does not grow tired or drowsy, but he always attends to the needs of his people. His care for his children, individually and corporately, is unmatched. What a picture we get of this in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of Jesus' betrayal. The Gospels tell us how Jesus went there knowing what was awaiting him at the bottom of the mountain to pray. And how he told his disciples to pray themselves so that they might be not be led into temptation. But each time he returned, he found them asleep. And even though he exhorted them to continue to pray, he himself went back and continued the faithful work. We are told that Jesus is always interceding on behalf of his people. That he is our great high priest. He is our redeemer. He is our keeper, and he does not slumber. As such, we see that God works to preserve us. Look at verse 5 and 6. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. 
In creation, God made the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night. The psalmist uses these two features of creation to speak of the all-encompassing protection that God gives his people. No authority in heaven or on earth can touch us apart from God's approval. He keeps us and he preserves us, even, even as we see from verse 7, from all evil. Now, there are some who want to picture God and Satan as equal forces, as a sort of yin-yang sort of struggle between good and evil. Satan is a great and terrible foe, but he is nothing compared to the power and the glory of God. Uh, Satan hates God, and he hates God's people. He's like a rabid dog who wants to rip and tear and destroy and maim and kill, but he is on a great chain that he cannot break. He is still subject to God, even in his rebellion. And though he hates God, he will answer for all that he has done. Whatever comes our way, God's people have this great assurance. Verse 8, that he will keep our going out and our coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I don't know about you, but forth, time forth and forevermore means always. This is not a temporary relationship that God has with his people. He doesn't get bored of this. This is eternal. It lasts because he never changes. This promise looks forward to what Jesus says in John 6, verses 39 through 40. And he says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. A sure promise. We live in a troubled world. I didn't have to tell you that today. We live in a troubled world. But Jesus has secured an inheritance for his people that lasts. This world is not our home. We are waiting on the consummation, on the coming of an eternal kingdom where sin will be no more, where lies and deceit will be banished, where we will dwell in the very presence of the glory of God. This is the gift of the gospel. And as we read these words from the psalmist, we resonate with them. And as we do so, we must ask ourselves three questions. Three questions. Where are the eyes of your heart? Where are the eyes of your heart? Have we become content with what this troubled world can offer us? This psalm calls us to look to something that is greater, to a heavenly city, our inheritance. Lift your eyes from this troubled world. If you find yourself down, behold the beauty of Christ the King. A Christian will never feel at home in this world any more than a living person should feel at home in a graveyard. This world is not where we, it's not our eternal destiny. We've been bought with a price. So let us live accordingly by looking accordingly. Second, where is the hope of your heart? Where is the hope of your heart? We cannot enter heaven through our own strivings. If our study of Galatians has done anything for us, it has shown us that our only hope in life and death is in the grace and the kindness of God and in the work of Christ for us. There are many things to be distressed about in this world. 
but we always have reason to hope in the midst of every circumstance because our God is the God who delivers, who helps, and who keeps his people. Our victory is sure because his promises are sure and that equips us for faithful service even when we see dark clouds on the horizon. Third, and a most important question, is do you know Christ as your Savior? It's too easy to come to church and to assume the gospel. It's so easy. We need to ask ourselves to make sure that we are trusting in Christ and in Christ alone. There's no denying that this world is a troubled place. And the Bible explains that the trouble that is in this world has a source, and that source is sin. Jesus sets us free from our sin and from the wrath that is to come upon it. He rescues sinners out of death and makes them alive in him. And a day is coming when God will hold the wicked accountable. Uh, we get that image from the way it speaks of these, these arrows that are being shot out at these liars and these slanderers. Apart from Christ, we are all in the crosshairs of God's coming wrath. And it, and within, and it is not within any one of us to jump out of the way. Our only hope is to trust in the God who has delivered his people through the work of his Son. So my call to you this morning is if you don't know Christ as your Savior today, that you ought to seek refuge in Christ while there is still time. There is still time while there is breath left in your body. So seek Christ. Repent and trust in the God who saves. Praise God for the God. Praise God that He is our great deliverer. Let's pray. Our great God and King, you rule heaven and earth. You are perfect. You are holy. You are omnipotent, omniscient, almighty, worthy of the praise of heaven. The many good things we see on this earth, the things that take our breath away with their beauty, are nothing compared to you. They are merely expressions of your goodness. Father, we thank you for psalms like these, psalms that, that appeal to the brokenhearted and those who are in great distress. We confess to you, Father, we live in a broken world and we ourselves have felt our weakness this week. We have mourned the evil that is in our world. We have mourned over the way sin reigns over our beloved neighbors. We have seen how sin remains attractive to our own hearts as we battle day in and day out with the flesh. And we ask, Father, that you would give us the strength to persevere. That you would do what the psalmist says here. That you would deliver your people. That you would help your people. And that you would keep your people. And we trust, because we know that you are jealous for your name. And that you always keep your promises. That you will do these things. We ask and appeal these things in the name of our beloved King and our Savior, your begotten, only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.